Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science and technology. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Susan Cantra, who will tell us about upcoming developments in consumer electronics. Also, we'll find out if we can fit everyone in the world into a cubic mile. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week. We'll come right up here on Berkeley Rock. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. What's going on this week? Uh, I don't know. It's always a fun week in science, and every week that there's science going on, I'm excited. Mm-mm-mm. I'm brimming over with excitability. If science was a restaurant, <laughs> what would you be eating? I, you know, if science was a restaurant, it better damn well be a buffet. A buffet. Because I, I couldn't leave, really. The best damn buffet in the world, The right? best darn buffet in the world. <laughs> and okay. for dessert, a little astronomy. The stars are kind of crunchy. The stars are indeed crunchy. And speaking of stars, oddly enough... Turns out researchers have found uh, what turns out to be a delightful little dish. The the most delightful dish of all is the supernova. This does it get five stars out of five stars? <laughs> <laughs> it gets among them. It's, it's apparently a great year for supernovas, it turns out, uh, as astronomers have found what they term a progenitor star for a certain supernova that recently exploded. That sounds like a science fiction thing, you know? <laughs> it actually turns out to be a lot more difficult than you would think. So, of course, supernovas are the result of stars that have basically uh, died, lost their fuel, and basically exploded all their contents into space. Mm-hmm. Um, and researchers trying to test these models have tried to find out what the star was before it went supernova. So, of course, you can see the supernovas before, but what, what did the star look like before that? Hmm. And it's been quite difficult because you have to try and match up a star in the position of where the supernova was from old photographs of that particular supernova. Right. And so it's been very difficult, but by pure coincidence, researchers have found out that this recent supernova, 2003 GD, was a very comet-type type 2 explosion, but it happened to have also been imaged by the Hubble Space Telescope and the Gemini North Telescope on Mount Akena before it had exploded. And also by the French chef. Among other things. <laughs> can cook. An emerald live, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite amazing, and they found out some interesting things about this star, that it was about eight times more massive and about 20 times more luminous. Hey, size is not everything, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> it can be, you know. At least that's what I've been told, but <laughs> that's because I'm Asian. But anyway... <laughs> so am I. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what they say about Asian men, right? 
Uh, we have trouble pronouncing our R's. But um, <laughs> anyway, the interesting thing about it is that it does confirm a lot of uh, supernova formation theories, and it should hopefully uh, spawn new insights into how these things are formed. Super duper. Indeed. And if anyone wants to look at this, this was published in the 23rd January issue of Science. So if science is a restaurant, would you want to be served the deadly bird flu? Only if it came with free drink or something on the side. Because, you know, I'll, I'll do anything for a free drink. Well, it turns out for humans it may not be such a problem, but for uh, ducks and chicken, uh, the bird flu is quite deadly. And in fact, there's an epidemic going on in Southeast Asia right now. I guess hence the name the deadly bird flu, <laughs> as opposed to the deadly human flu. Uh, although some people have died from it. So Oh, is that right? So uh, epidemiologists are quite concerned about this new development. Oh, right. So perhaps they're thinking that the bird flu can jump species, maybe mutate and something like that. Right. And they have some reason to believe it. It could also hybridize with the regular flu. And mutate the regular flu as well. Right. Pretty scary, huh? Uh, have there been big public health outcries that people started burning their poultry? Or? In the report news, there's been at least a million chickens killed throughout Asia, probably more that the government has not released. Some people even saved the pandemic. I guess that's not so tasty, then. If we're traveling in China, then don't order Probably not eat anything uh, too out of the ordinary. <laughs> Although yeah. chickens are pretty ordinary, so uh, I'm not sure what we're supposed to not eat now. Right. Cows are no good, chickens are no good. Yeah, we're running out of meat. I guess tempeh is no good. <laughs> <laughs> going to be the next big thing. Go vegetarian, I guess. Right. Well, you know, it'll be the the deadly tempeh flu. Yeah. yeah. So I guess if anyone wants to know more, uh, they can go to the website of the WHO or just do a quick search on uh, Google. Okay. Do you actively find yourself trying to mimic what other people do? All the time. I don't have my own identity. <laughs> But then again, maybe I'll create something out of all the mix that of, of people I've met. Isn't that what the Matrix is all about? <laughs> I think that might be one function of the Matrix, yes. Uh, but it turns out that, in fact, our brains may be hardwired to actually uh, mimic other people's actions. Subconsciously. Subconsciously, yeah. So it turns out that there's a group of neurons in our brain, part of the brain called the premotor cortex, mm-hmm. that actively become aware of some action that's going on in space. Okay. So, for instance, if somebody's grasping an object, these premotor neurons will actively start firing and signaling. Huh. Uh, researchers first found this out in monkeys, where they were able to show that monkeys had these neurons that fired up when a human grabbed an object, but they didn't light up when a human used a tool, for instance, pliers, to grab an object. Really? So it suggested that perhaps these neurons are only specific for natural biological movement. But one of the questions was, of course, was whether or not humans also had the same sort of distinction between natural and unnatural movement. Mm-hmm. And a group of researchers at the University of London, led by Umberto Castillo, have used uh, imaging techniques to actually see whether or not this is true or not. And they used humans and humans controlling a little robot. And it's Essentially, what happens is that only for the case where the human's doing a natural movement of grasping with their arm do they see this actually take place. So it only uh, relates to the arm movement, is that right? Right. So when they use like, a tool or like, this robotic arm, the, the brain would not respond. Do you think this is some evolutionary effect, you know, allows us to somehow show familiarity with each other or some sort of communication? It certainly may be just that part of the brain has only had evolved in sort of a naturalistic setting. Mm-hmm. So it's not used to seeing tools or being prepared for that kind of signaling. Right. Monkey see, monkey do, I guess. <laughs> or human see. A human don't sometimes. <laughs> Anyone's interested in this, they can take a look at this week's current biology.
All right, so has your computer ever been hacked? Uh, no. Luckily, thankfully, it has not. Really? I mean, you don't want someone to plant the entire episodes of Simpsons onto your hard drive and make it as a server? You know, I wouldn't mind that. I, I like the Simpsons. <laughs> but uh, I guess you wouldn't want anyone to be like, corrupting your data and stuff no, like that. No, certainly huh? not that, yeah. Right. So there's a company out in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Ecosystems, which is developing a program that can uh, predict future virus and hacker attacks and devise ways to prevent them from uh, infiltrating. That's kind of strange. How does it do that? So the way they're doing it is actually actually uh, taking known hacker routines and virus attacks and evolving them, so-called mutating them, and using that to predict what other possibilities can happen. So far that we know of uh, trying to go through firewalls and uh, antivirus software, but uh-huh. there could be other signs we haven't picked up and that could surpass these uh, mechanisms. Right. I mean, if I were uh, a hacker, I would just buy this program, use it to mutate other things, and, and use it to create the next virus. But You mean Windows 2000? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's Windows Me. Yeah, well, Microsoft is the virus. <laughs> and so Slowly, Berkeley Grox will be crushed by Bill Gates. Uh-oh. You think he'll buy us out one of these days? I, th- I think he's going to own the world at some point, but that's just my impression. You mean uh, 1984 will be 1984, huh? <laughs> Except it won't be IBM controlling us. It'll be a Big Blue Gates. <laughs> BG. All right. And so the, the U.S. Army is actually quite interested in this because they're worried that a lot of uh, enemies or potential enemies are developing offenses against our highly computerized systems. So basically, it's going to be a military application, I guess, first. Right? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. How long do we have to wait before we'll see this thing on the market? Maybe Maybe they don't want us to know at this point. There's a lot of interesting implications here that viruses can behave in a way that real biological viruses behave in a way that they can also mutate. Right, and basically take the forms of other viruses and combine things and such. Right. So I guess the whole reason for the analogy. Uh, this actually reminds me of, of a game that they used to have when I was in oh, junior high, right. Core Wars. So basically, you have two players, and you're each allotted memory space. And in that memory space, you have your program, and your program can go and attack the other guy's memory space. And it, you can change the algorithm or routine which it attacks. Oh, okay. So depending on who can survive the longest, the strongest virus, I guess. It sounds like life, in a way. <laughs> Man. Survival of the fittest. We are a disease, huh? <laughs> the, the computers are the cure. Cool. So if people want to find out more about this program... They can go to a recent issue of The New Scientist, or they can look up Ecosystems. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Susan Cantor from Popular Science will join us to tell us about this year's consumer devices. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. The annual consumer electronics show in Las Vegas is the forum where companies show off their latest and hottest electronic and computer gizmos, and this year was no exception. Well, joining us today to talk about this year's offerings is Ms. Susan Cantra from Popular Science Magazine. Uh, Ms. Cantra, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Thank you. So let's talk about this year's trends. Uh, what's big this year? Well, one of the huge things that we saw at the show was TVs are just exploding, whether that's rear projection TVs. Now you can get a rear projection TV that you can hang on the wall. This is a 70-inch set that is less than 7 inches deep, which is just absolutely amazing when you think about people being, you know, salivating over those LCD <laughs> and plasma displays. Right. Now we have the opportunity for potentially the price points to come way down on these large screen TVs. So there's that aspect. We're seeing wireless coming into a lot of aspects. Mm-hmm. We see wireless TVs. We're seeing wireless rear channel speakers for your home theater setup. Uh, we're seeing the ability to wirelessly deliver content from your PC to your TV. So wireless is a huge aspect of the show as well. Wow. So understand that uh, laptops now use the uh, the Wi-Fi standard uh, where they can hook up to net wirelessly up to uh, two or 300 feet away from the, uh, from the transmitter. But uh, recently there's been a proliferation of the Bluetooth standard, another wireless standard where you can you know connect devices, say, between a few feet or 50 feet away from each other. Uh, which standard are these stereos using right now? It's mainly based on Wi-Fi, whether that's um, 802.11b, which is the slower speed, mm-hmm. or the higher speed which is the A or G version. I see. Recently, there's been a lot of talk and, in fact, a lot of development towards convergence. The whole idea that you can have a single platform for entertainment and work on your computer. Microsoft has even released a media center version of their offering system. Uh, where do you see all this going? Well, there's been a lot of convergence. We've seen the home media center PCs coming into play. Mm -hmm. But really what we're seeing is that kind of entertainment experience being piped back again into the living room. So, uh, for instance, Microsoft announced that they're going to have a connector to their home media center PCs that will interact with their Xbox so that you can look at videos and photos and experience your music. So it actually has taken another shift back to the living room again. On the other side of it, there are also detractors to this idea of convergence. Uh, for example, Steve Jobs at Apple has repeatedly said that there's no future for this, um, for the reason that computers are designed for people to think, while a TV or entertainment system is developed for people to turn their brains off. Uh, in fact, if you look at earlier attempts at convergence, uh, they have not been very successful so far. Do you think with the recent technological developments, uh, we should take a second look at this? Well, you are sort of seeing that because you you have the files potentially on your PC or Apple computer, but you want to listen to your music in a more relaxed setting or you want to watch your movies in a more relaxed setting. So Mm -hmm. enabling that through wireless or wired um, networking, you can then relax and enjoy your content in in your living room and then be able to do your real work in front of your PC. I don't think that we are going to be seeing people doing a lot of web browsing in front of their TVs. You're, you're not going to be bringing the keyboard a lot into the living room, right. as Jobs had said. There's been a lot of new devices, particularly those that uh, carry uh, video media wherever you go. What are the uh, latest capacities on these devices? 
Well, we're seeing anything up to 80 gigabytes in terms of these portable hard drive systems. And we saw last year the introduction of audio and video devices from mm-hmm. Arcos and RCA. Mm-hmm. This year we saw a really exciting new device from Tight Systems called the Taz One. And what's unique about this product is that it has a removable hard drive. So you get these 60 gigabyte cartridges with 20 hours of video, but then you can swap in another 60 gigabytes of data. In addition, it has a little MP3 player that docks into the the main unit, which is about the size of a VHS tape. So if you bring it on a trip, it's great for, say, a transatlantic flight. You want to go down and take a workout while you're traveling on business. You just take out this matchbox size MP3 player, and you have all your music, too. Let's talk about Microsoft's Xbox strategy. I guess as a lot of people know, um, it's been a lost leader in in developing this device. What exactly is their strategy for the Xbox? Well, Xbox, obviously, they see it as a way to get into the home entertainment center. And they have the hard drive there. They're obviously looking at bringing other types of data services in through that device. Now, what they're actually going to be doing with that in terms of next-generation products, we're going to probably hear more about that in May come the big trade show called um, E3. Mm-hmm. But they don't sound, show any signs of pulling back from that area, and I would be surprised at this point with such a significant investment um, if they didn't have some, you know, at least what they feel are good ideas for making better use of that platform. So you think there's a possibility that the Xbox and the PC could somehow converge or communicate in some uh, seamless way at some point? Well, they are going to be um, coming up with that home media center adapter kit where you're going to be able to pull information from your PC and share it onto your Xbox for viewing on your TV. So they are already thinking along those lines. Now, how much further they're going to go in that direction still remains to be seen. So I guess the other big news was the uh, the HP's announcement of selling uh, Apple's iPod later this year. Uh, apparently, that's generated a lot of uh, opinions on both sides of the PC <laughs> and the Mac. Uh, what, what exactly are the issues involved here? Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because, of course, what's really interesting about the iPod is not only its cute form factor and nice design, but its seamless integration with the iTunes software. So how well that translates into the PC platform remains to be seen. I mean, they have they did release an iTunes for the PC this year. Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to have the same kind of impact as iTunes did on, in the Apple community? That remains to be seen because we see Samsung and Napster hooking up. Sony's launching their own service called Connect. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of initiatives out there, Dell with uh, Music Match. So it's not as much a straight play in the PC space. One concern that consumers have about these devices is the battery life. For example, with the iPod, there have been reports that the battery life gets shorter and shorter every time you recharge it. Uh, are we making any progress in terms of developing a better uh, energy storage system? Lithium-ion technology has a certain number of times it can be recharged. Oh, I see. So, you know, they're obviously working on battery technologies all the time, and hopefully we're going to see that recharge cycle rate be able to go up so we can get more lifetime out of our products or, you know, make the batteries so that they are indeed replaceable. But there's no new technology in terms of a traditional battery that's really on the horizon. What we're seeing, though, is fuel cells, and we may be seeing those in products as early as the end of this year, beginning of next year. And which companies are involved in this uh in this process? Well, there have been a number of companies who've shown some interest. I know Toshiba's shown interest, NEC has shown interest. So it's going to be a question of who actually comes to market first with this. So something I've been wondering about myself, about storage media, 
Uh, there's been a lot of talk about going from DVD to other high capacity formats, uh, for example, using double density or double sided formats so that you can store more data or even using a higher frequency lasers. Uh, there have been reports that Sony has developed a 27 gigabyte DVD format. Uh, are we going to see that anytime soon? Well, Sony does have a data drive, which uses a blue laser to put down information, mm-hmm. and it's not what we've been hearing of. A, you may have heard of Blu-ray, which is the standard that they're thinking of for putting down information for high-definition video. This is the device that is out from Sony is a data-only device at this point. Oh, so it's basically just uh, recordable? Or... It's recordable for your PC, really. All right, and what was your favorite part of the show? Well, one of my absolute favorite product categories is navigation systems. I'm not sure why, but <laughs> I love them. And we saw just a huge amount in terms of these handheld transportable navigation systems that basically you throw up on your dashboard and it receives a GPS signal and can give you turn-by-turn directions. One really interesting adjunct to this for in-car navigation systems mm-hmm. comes from Sirius Satellite Radio. Mm-hmm. Next year, they're going to be introducing a traffic service which will download traffic and weather information to your system so that it can reroute you around an accident or if there's a particularly bad road condition, it will actually let you know that ahead of time and will steer you around that. But still no car that can drive by itself, right? (laughs) (laughs) They're getting more and more into that. There are systems now that uh, will enable cars to stay within their lanes there's a lane keep system. I believe it's from Nissan. Uh-huh. It's available in Japan. They're evaluating that technology for here in the United States. And there are also systems that when they know that a crash is, is inevitable, it will help you protect yourself from a crash. So it will cut off the uh, the gas to the engine. It will straighten the seat backs. It will tighten the seat belts. Wow. Uh, in some cases, it will even deploy the bumpers a little bit to help cushion you for that impact. Uh, there have been news about self-parking cars. Have you <laughs> seen anything like that? Well, I wish it was going to come here. It's a Toyota Prius, and it's available in Japan, but they haven't brought it to the United States yet. And basically, you pull up to the beginning and then the ending of your parking space, and it will then park the car for you, which I have to tell you, living here in New York City, I can see a lot of people who can make a use for that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're parking uphill, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mentioned satellite technology and hooking up to your cars. Uh, what about getting full Internet access into your vehicle. Did you see anyone working on that? Well, it's funny you should mention that because there's a company called Databond that came out with a a product called the T1 Mobile Satellite. Uh And this is about a 24-inch dish you mounted on the top of your car or boat or RV. And it can receive T1 or corporate data network speed feeds from a satellite for just $79 a month. The initial setup is about $4,000. You would have to uh, definitely want to this high-speed Internet access, but, you know, that's very impressive for somebody who's going to be going out into the middle of nowhere. Ms. Cantra, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you. And we were just talking to Ms. Susan Cantra, one of the tech editors from Popular Science Magazine. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out how parrots talk, so stay tuned.
Welcome to Berkeley Grocks. Ever wonder how parrots talk? Well, now you can with this week's Everyday Science. A man who walks with the animals, talks with the animals. Ever wonder how parrots talk? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. They could talk to me. As a rule, birds are a pretty chatty bunch. Most only talk to each other. But some birds, like minor birds and parrots, can mimic human languages. African gray parrots are some of the best chatterboxes. Let's visit one in the tropics. Interestingly, the parrot's unique personality is what makes it want to speak like humans. Of course, parrots in the wild speak their own language, but in captivity, they still want to be part of a flock, even if it's a flock of humans. This makes them eager to learn words or phrases they hear regularly. Let's look into this a little more deeply. Here's where it all begins, in a special organ called the syrinx. This is the bird's equivalent of the human larynx, or voice box. Look, the syrinx contains slotted, vibrating membranes that work a lot like our vocal cords. Like humans, birds first take air into their lungs. As they breathe out, air is forced back up, causing the syrinx to contract or expand. This action allows the bird to vary the tone and quality of the sounds it makes. These subtle variances allow our parrot to closely imitate human words. And along with its outgoing personality, gives our feathered friend its unique gift of gab. A man who walks with the animals, talks with the animals. Well, I'm all talked out. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, making science make sense. And now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, uh, thank you very much, Charles Lee. Is it possible to fit everybody in the world into one cubic mile? And uh, now here's the answer. Well, let's suppose for a moment that the one cubic mile is 25 billion cubic feet. That's 5,000 feet on each side of this cube. And now uh, also assume that each person will occupy three cubic feet. For some people, they may need more, but let's say average is three cubic feet. And assuming there are six billion people in the world, that would require 18 billion cubic feet. So actually, we will have a little breathing room even when we put everybody into the cubic mile. Yes, that's uh, very interesting there, Tokyo Kids. I didn't know so many people could fit in the square mile. I should lose a little weight or something, yeah? And uh, now here's a uh, question for this week. Uh, so we know about Celsius scale, why 0 no 100 or 0 no 100. Uh, yeah, but the Fahrenheit scale is very interesting. Why do we have 0 under 100 on the Fahrenheit scale? Where did they come from? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us here at gox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might know what the temperature is. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Cross. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Cross, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Cross, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>